0: we we'll live?
1: We'll get started here now. <laughs> so we're uh, welcome back to the Adams Award podcast. We're in the home with uh, Keith Kepler this morning and excited to get to know him a little bit and uh, we'll jump right in. Um, hi, Keith. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming over, guys. Yeah, well, we'll just get started. How about you tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, uh, where you come from, your your home life and that type of thing.
0: Well, I was thinking about this question when I saw it. I thought, to be fair to my folks, because my parents were kind of strict, that I need to do a little genealogy here. So my great-grandfather... Well, my relatives on the Kepler side come from northern Austria, German. So German are very stoic, kind of strict people. Immigrated over a man with five sons. So my genealogy goes through one of those sons. My great-grandfather, Solomon, was a Methodist minister... Very wealthy in town up in the Great Lakes area, and he had the idea to start a city called Zion. And so he, his idea was to do kind of the law of consecration with the city. I thought it was interesting that when the LDS people were like Kirtland and all that at the same time, I have a grandfather. I don't. I have no idea if he heard about their idea of Independence, Missouri, and said, "Hey, I can do it better." but... <laughs> He developed a city, and needless to say, within three years, he lost uh, every dollar he invested. He was only able to recoup 10 cents. So he went from a very wealthy man to a mediocre, poor man. Yeah. And he had uh, six daughters and a son. His son's name was Joseph, and for whatever reason, Joseph left the family and went to South Dakota. And when my grand great-grandfather died, he did not go to the funeral. So I'm gathering there wasn't a good relationship there. So in South Dakota, you don't have much in the choice of wives. So he got a mail-order bride from Chicago. And I don't know what my grandmother was like, but I got the impression she liked... Why she even went to South Dakota, I don't know. But I hear that she was pretty flamboyant in Chicago. I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> Uh, They had five children, of which one was my father. I think he was the fourth of five, not the youngest. But their relationship essentially failed. Um, Became very bitter. My grandmother burned down her husband's barn with all of the farming equipment. And then she put my dad in the Merchant Marines in World War II at the age of 17. So not a lot of love because the reason she did that was that it had the highest death payout. It was ten grand. If you were in the army it was like eight grand. So I hate to think of it that way, but maybe my grandmother was thinking he's probably gonna die and I want to make as much money as I can. So kind of so I I kind of bring this into the mix because my mom and dad, when they met, my dad was in the Air Force my mom was raised in a family where it was just her and a brother, and they were like nine years apart. And my grandfather, Clarence, on my mother's side, was an inner-city truck driver, but he was an alcoholic. So when he would come home with the paycheck, um, quite a bit of it was spent at the bars. So a very kind of poverty-stricken life. My grandmother was a Pentecostal evangelist-type woman. <laughs> And they met and married. So why do I talk about them? Because my folks had seven children. I was the well-adjusted number fifth child. And uh, it, you know, so what was my childhood like? You know, my, I never wanted for anything. My dad was a great provider. He worked at Boeing for 47 years. I always had clothes, food, a roof over my head, um, all of those things. But my dad as you could probably understand from his history, kind of lacked in the ability to show love. You know, something my father taught me that I'm very grateful for is he taught me how to work. So, my mother was a little bit better. She wanted to travel, but never did because of my dad not wanting to leave the farm. We had a little 20-acre hobby farm. And, uh, but she tried, she took us to Disneyland one summer. She took us down to Biloxi, Mississippi, when my sister and brother-in-law were in the air force and we went up through St. Louis where her brother was. We did Mount Rushmore. If it hadn't been for my mom, we never, I never would have seen anything more than 20 miles from my house. So mom tried her best. It's, It's unfortunate that my dad, you know, if dad would have had a little bit of a desire to travel, you know, that would have been a lot better. Uh, we didn't go to church. I think in my whole time growing up, I was went to church twice. I remember going to my grandmother's Pentecostal church, and I attended it. I was about 12, and all the young youth were just like, I'm going to use the term monkeys. They were crazy. They were disrespectful to the instructor. They were climbing around and being just, and I'm sitting there watching them thinking, Why would I want to be part of this organization? Because they're not being respectful to their teacher. So I'm always nervous as a Latter Day Saint when you bring people to church. You always hope that it's a good, you know, talks, and that when they go to their classes, I always ask, "How was your class?" and and I always usually get positive feedback. I don't get what I got. So, but one thing my dad did, oddly enough, is when he was in the Air Force, he was at Hill Air Force Base in Utah, and his best man was LDS. So somehow that influenced them. So when we, as a child, every Sunday we would get up, have breakfast, and then we'd gather in the living room, everybody would have their New Testament, and we would read that every Sunday. So I have probably been through the Bible two or three times by the time I graduated from high school. And we did read the Old Testament, and I was just thinking the other day, another thing my dad brought in, which was kind of cool, it was called The Plain Truth. I think it was put out by the Assembly of God organization. But it would take a story like uh, Joshua, and it would make it more like a novel. And it would be like 20 pages in there, and it was, they would take the scriptures, and then they would kind of fill it in with kind of, you know, like a movie. And I, I loved reading. It would come out once a month, and I always loved it because it would take some aspect of the Bible and make it into a, like a movie. So I loved reading those. Oddly enough, and my dad was, I was the fifth child, so four were gone by the time I was up. And we had, I had two younger brothers. When I was 17, he decided that we'd start reading the Koran. And I can remember as a 17-year-old, I don't know why, but I told him that I am not going to read the Koran. I will read the Bible. I'm not speaking against the Koran, although, you know, I have my feelings on it. But uh, so that kind of ended our Sunday, um, you know, Scripture study. So I can tell you that when the elders came, I can honestly say that probably when we read Scripture, as they were teaching me the discussions, that I knew the Bible better than they did. So, yeah, like probably a lot of people do that are raised (laughs) in a Christian faith. So that was my family. As far as closeness, as you can understand, Mom, being raised in an alcoholic family, they say siblings of alcoholic parents tend to be a little bit selfish, so she was a little bit recluse. My dad didn't know how to love because he was not shown love. So, but they, you know, they were harsh. My dad was, um... But so how did I get through that? You know, junior high, seventh grade, I got into sports. I wasn't super great at sports, but I was very good at wrestling, you know, football and track. I had friends. That's how I had my associations. I got involved in student government. You know, my senior year, I was the high school associated student body president. And uh, that and I had a couple good friends and I just hung out with them. I didn't know any LDS kids. Our neighbors across the street were LDS, and they tried to influence my folks. Um, I knew about the church a little bit, but missionaries would come over. But when they did, my dad would usually pull them aside and have, you know, very positive conversations with them. He loved to talk religion, but I just would like I don't, you know, I would just walk out. I didn't know what was going on, you know. And uh, so, as far as hobbies, I. I didn't really have any hobbies. I could milk cows, hand milk cows. I could, you know, I could... We didn't bale hay. We would go get hay and store it in the barn. I was very good at that. I could put fence posts, fence posts in. I could take broken barbed wire and repair it. I could, make, you know, wire fence gates. Uh, I could do all of those kinds of things that a lot of people can't do. I mean, I can milk cows now still. I haven't done it in like 30 <laughs> years, but I know I could sit and milk a cow if I wanted. It's a very... Uh, Marla was very impressed with my milker muscle when I showed her. She teased me, why should I marry you? And I squeezed my fist and my, at my elbow. This muscle sticks out from milking. And I said, because of that muscle. So she said, okay, I'm going to marry you. So uh, education, graduated from high school. Um, we were born and raised over on the west side, a town called Maple Valley, which is about 10 miles southeast of Renton, which is about 15 miles southeast of Seattle. In the area, of the county's called South King County. Um, didn't get out much, you know uh, so graduated from high school didn't know what I wanted to do. I really did not know. I had a sister living in Port Angeles. if you don't know where Port Angeles is, if you go across the Hood Canal Bridge, and if you know where Vancouver Island is, there's a town called Victoria that a ferry goes south and it ports at Port Angeles. It's a beautiful town. So there was a college there, a two-year school. I went there for two years, lived with one sister, and then I had a second sister that lived in the same town. I spent the second year with them. And that worked out pretty well. Um, it was a degree in forestry as a technician. I, it was kind of ironic because at the end of the two years, every job that they introduced me to, I couldn't see myself doing it as a 40- or 50-year-old man. You know, I'm thinking I don't want to be working in the woods when I'm 50 years old. So, I decided that I probably needed to go to uh, the University of Washington. And but during that period of in the being in the college and going into the U for the next four years, I got a job with the Forest Service, and what they call uh, we did what we call oh well, my brain just went dead. We did. <laughs> We would go after the loggers would go in and log like a hundred acres. We would go in and burn all the slash, a slash burning. That's what it was called. So we, we had a slash burning crew. I was in charge of a crew of uh, 20 people. And when you burn a hundred acres, you would light the top off and then work your way down these slopes, burning strips at a time. And sometimes a stump would roll to the bottom and ignite the whole 50 acres and it would, we call it slop over into the trees. Oh no. And you'd get, three, five, seven, ten-acre slopovers, essentially forest fires that we caused. And I really enjoyed it. You know, it was very <laughs> athletic. It was very fun. Uh, my nickname was Young Buck because there wasn't anybody that worked my whole ten years there that could beat me up a hill. I was able to beat them. And... uh I was, I think, I can attribute that to when I was like Aubrey's age, 12. I would chase the calves in the pasture, and calves are much faster, but you they eventually get tired. Mm-hmm. So I would chase them, and finally I would be able to catch their tail, and then they would take <laughs> off. And if you hang on tight, you get the ride of your life because it's like the whip, the thing where you everybody's holding hands, and you literally almost are flying through the air, and it was fun. And then they would, you would both fall down on the pasture. You'd pet the calf for about 30 minutes as you're both breathing heavy. So I enjoyed that. Um, I didn't really have any hobbies through my youth. My, My dad took us fishing one time in a World War II rubber raft, like you see, being tossed off of a battleship that's sinking. It had been in the barn for decades. We pumped it up. Me and my three brothers got in. And about halfway across the lake, the fabric started to tear and leak. So by the time we paddled all the way back, we were basically underwater and floating on this thing. So that was our fishing experience. As a Probably I was about 14 at that time.
1: (laughs) Done with it after that. (laughs) My dad was.
0: I kind of liked it. I mean, I never actually got a pole in the water, but uh, I thought, you think I'm going to try this when I get old enough? Uh, my dad did do a little bit of hunting, but we had cows. We'd always butcher a couple cows a year for a family of nine. So I was—I personally was never really a hunter. I thought, why hunt? If I really need meat, I could raise a cow. And we did that, Marla and I, for a little bit when we had our own family. Um,
1: so did it, you stick in the university or did yeah, you stick with forestry? Like how did you get to yeah. your eventual career that you stuck with?
0: So in forestry, I got my degree in a Bachelor of Science in Forest Resource Management with a kind of emphasis on protection. Through that period of time, I was working with the Forest Service. I had 10 years in. I had the most time in on the Olympic Peninsula as a seasonal employee. They called me a permanent seasonal, meaning I was guaranteed a job each year. But that if I, wasn't, if I was actually working the full year, they'd lay me off for like, there was a, a lot of time. I think it was like 60 days. Because if they worked me more than a certain amount of days, they had to pay me benefits. Uh-huh. So I was a permanent seasonal, meaning I had a guaranteed job with no benefits. But now with my four-year degree, I was able to apply for a job as a forester at GS9. and a GS nine. And but it was like spring summer of I can't remember what year it was. It'd be like 1981. The ranger brought me into his office, and no lie, if you can picture John Wayne in an office smoking a big cigar so the smoke (laughs) levels down to the table, and you're a healthy person trying not to cough, um, he basically told me that in the government now, all GS9 professional foresters are 90% white men, and the feds were saying that they wanted it to be minorities 50% within 5 to 10 years. So he said, you will get hired, Keith, but anytime time there's a promotion, you'll get passed over, not because you're not qualified, but you're, it's not going to meet. So, so oddly enough, I was probably one of the first white males that experienced um, discrimination, you know, that you hear so much about today. But I'm a believer that um, when one door closes, two doors open, you hear that saying, and that for me was a very true statement because I had a friend who said, why don't you become a firefighter in a city fire department who I'd never even thought about it. I thought, okay, house fires, tree fires, common denominator fire. So I applied, and uh, I didn't realize the difficulty Um, The city that I did get hired with had nine positions open. They had 1,100 people applying, and I was one of the nine they hired. I think a lot of that's due to my education, my experience. I had some job awards because, remember, my dad taught me how to work, so I was a good worker, and it all came into focus. And it was about, that was March 11th I was hired, and I met Marla, in the fall, September, we were married in January. We were only knew each other about nine weeks. <laughs> but hey, if you're doubting, you know that. Tell kids, don't be like Brother Kepler. We've been married 36 years, so it worked. There you go.
1: You know, and you know, you know, you know.
0: <laughs> and uh, so, no, that. So, in one of the questions, it says focus points in your life that were critical that you think, and that would be one of them. Getting on with the fire department, because no lie, my salary as a probationary firefighter almost equaled what a ranger would have made, a ranger GS-13. So that was a blessing. I met Marla some months later, not that long. That was a blessing. Um, I had some stability brought into my life. I was married before to a non-member. It was right at the time I was testing that she didn't want me to test, and I knew that she didn't want to be with me, so I didn't include that in my decision-making process. So I was... I was a member in the church. I joined when I was younger, 19, married to a non-member. So I kind of know what that's like when you run into not-part member families. The irony is, is if you could go back into the 70s, you would never find an article written to a brother about what you do because you have a non-member wife. All the non-member articles were written to sisters. If I went into the branch president out in Port An- or out in Forks or to a bishop, they're like, I really don't know what to do. I'll tell you, Brother Kepler, I have no experience in this. It's always sisters. <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of negative, but it all turned into a positive.
1: So you say you were about 19 when, when you joined? I joined the church. Is that from the missionaries from I, around when your dad was, was having L- well, people in and out? Or when,
0: yeah, no, that's a good back. question. So when I lived in Port Angeles, my sister, the first sister I lived with for the first year, they joined the church in the Air Force because they were brought, you know, fellowship by a bunch of members in the war down in Biloxi, Mississippi, where the base was. So when I moved in with them, it was the natural process for them to bring me into the church. So when the elders taught, you know, in here it talks a little bit about uh, being a follower of Christ or what's nurtured your testimony. I can't speak for other people. But when the elders came to me, it wasn't like they taught me something they didn't know. It wasn't, I mean, if you were to ask me, when did you believe Christ or when did you have a testimony, I could honestly say I never did not have a testimony. I can remember as a little kid. When I was a little kid, I burned my arm when I was six playing with gasoline and matches. And for those of you who know that I'm a firefighter, you may think that I have some kind of psychological issue with fire, but I don't. Maybe so. Maybe <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but uh, that was another critical turning point in my life because it put me on a different path. But I can remember as a six-year-old looking at the ceiling and going, "Why, why God, did this happen to me?" I mean, I don't know how I said God. I don't know where the "why God" came from, but I always knew there was a God. Mm-hmm. So when the elders came and taught me, the only two things I can remember specifically that they taught me that I wasn't sure about is they said Jesus Christ was the creator of this earth, and I thought God was, I, so they had to explain that to me. And then when they showed me the brethren, the first presidency, and the twelve apostles, they were all in suits and ties, and I was expecting robes and sashes and hats, you know, I'm like Catholics or, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> Essentially temple garments, like we wear, right? So... I was like, what? You know, these are the leaders. So that but that was it. Everything else they told me. Eternal marriage, I believed that. I believed that since I was as long as I can remember. It didn't make sense that you wouldn't be with the person you loved. Families being eternally together. You know, I didn't really have a grasp of that because my family wasn't really one that would I want to be with, but I didn't not want to be with them. So you know, it's so that wasn't easy, you know. And then what was interesting is when we had our Sunday Bible studies every Sunday, when my dad would extrapolate or sit back and ponder and postulate on the scriptures, he always gave it a little bit of an LDS slant, you know, which I thought was interesting. So I guess that was to my benefit too. Without knowing? Or... Well, he was, remember, he was in Utah for four years. His best man was gotcha. LDS. So I imagine he had a ton of discussions yeah. with his buddy, <laughs> his buddy, right? They must for have sure. talked about the church a lot. Okay. So the transition wasn't that tough for me at all. And uh, so I went into the Forest Service, transitioned into the fire department. That was great. Met Marla. Um, that was great. She already had Ariana. My daughter, who's now 40, really sighty present and over on South Hill in the Moran Prairie Ward. She was four, and uh, we had some difficulty getting pregnant, so we basically couldn't. So we became foster parents. We started that process. We fostered a couple children. Uh, they gave us a son who was three going on four, Jared. And we found out that he had a daughter, four going on five, Celeste. So we took both of them in. We were strongly counseled not to take the girl because she would never bond. When we got our two children, they had already we were the ninth home that they would have been placed in over four years. So they call it failure to bond. It's an actual psychological process. And here we sit now, decades later, about 17, our daughter essentially said, we don't, I don't need you, not in a negative, horrible way, but she just said, I don't want to be part of this family. We put her in job court to give her a footing. She graduated, and she's living somewhere in Seattle in apartments for the homeless. You know, she's not employed. She's basically living on government substance, you know. Our son's doing quite well. He did eight years in the military. He's going to be getting married to a gal now who has four children. And I told him the other day, I said, your son, you're the best person probably to marry a lady with four children based on your life and all of the things that you've been through. So we raised him in the church. He went on a mission to Belgium. He came back. Within a year and a half, he became less active, which was hard to deal with. But I'm kind of over that now. I realize that what's more important is, you know, being there to support him. I do believe, as they say, that he'll come back to the church. Not quite sure when, maybe after I die, but, you know, so it's there. Another big chapter in our life with children is we had about, Marla says, like 16 foster children that we had for various periods of time in and out of our home. We were willing to adopt two more, but the family didn't want it, so DSHS pulled them out of our home after us having them for 18 months. You know, so we don't have a real positive feelings of DSHS. We had a son. I call him a son. He wanted to be adopted, but I told him I wasn't going to do it till he was 30. That when we were in Centralia in a ward, I home-taught him and his twin brother. And when we moved north, his aunt, quasi-mom, because he didn't have a mom, asked if he could go with us, so he did. And we had him in our home. And uh, he went in the military and... He went to Afghanistan as the troop sniper. He was married to a young gal, had a kid. And when he came home, she was sleeping with a captain on base and told him that he was going to leave her and take his son away, so he shot himself and killed himself. So we know what it's like to have, he's not my biological son, but if he was alive today, he's as much as a son as I would say anybody's son is. So we've had to go through the suicide concepts. I'm grateful that that's being talked about in General Conference now, because historically, 30 years ago, when I joined the church, there was a lot of negative connotation on suicide. You know, never going to go to a celestial kingdom. I went to the temple president when I was on the high council in Seattle, the temple president, was the state president, and I went to see him and talked to him about it in the temple and asked if I could get his uh, temple work done, and he said yes. So that was very cool. Yeah. So all of this temple work's been done. He's been sealed. Wow. Well, he's actually sealed to us, but I told him I don't, I'm not quite sure how that worked because I didn't really have that done yet. So they just put him under our family name. If you go into my family genealogy, Cody is right there as one of my kids. Okay. We'll take care of that later in the next yeah. life. So we had that, yes. Our daughter lost her first grandson at 15 days, so we've had that experience of losing a grandson. Terrible for us, but horrible for my daughter and son-in-law. One thing that was cool when they lost their son is they put him in. They were down in Oregon. They put him in serving as temple workers in the temple for like nine months. So they were actually called him to be temple workers, and they said that really helped them kind of get through that hard time. So, yeah, fire department, uh, I loved it. Uh, one of the questions uh, what has nurtured your testimony during your adult life, what has caused you to trust God, I thought about that and I thought you know, again I go back to I always known there is a God I guess for me God is there has to be a constant, I think in today's world when you talk to people they're all over the place in their thoughts and thinking, they don't even know what to think they're letting government, they're letting society tell them how to think, how to dress, what to do but I can honest. I was less active when uh, I was married to the non-member. I tried to appease that individual by doing things with her, so I didn't go to church a number of times. We would go camping, hiking, climbing, all these things, hoping that someday she would reciprocate. But when you hear of people that are less active and they tell you that their testimony is never, um, they never lost their testimony, you may puzzle that, but that is a true statement. It was probably over a five-year window where I was what you would call less active. I did attend church occasionally, but my beliefs and everything I believed had never changed. I was just hoping that the circumstances of my life would change to where I could envelop this person into my life. And when that didn't happen, well... So, yeah, I've got a lot of different perspectives, I guess you could say, when it comes to church activity. And uh, the belief that we just... I really do believe that when you see somebody walk into the church, somebody that walks in that smells like cigarette smoke, and people go, you know, I don't see that so much anymore. Though, Adam's word I think is great. People are very welcoming in our ward. I don't see any. I don't personally see any judgment. There might be, but I don't see it or experience it. So,
1: I think we hope that the church is
0: baby-stepping towards that. Yeah, so. evolving, and For it's sure. uh, no, it's great. Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I was thinking about that, and I thought, in the fire department, you see a lot of pain and suffering, and, you know, you think of the Savior, that he suffers for every one of us, and one day I was talking to the chaplain, and I said, Pat, I said, I said, I used to kind of do what you did, but now we've hired chaplains to deal with when a when a baby dies or a child dies or a thirty-year-old mother dies of cancer or there's a car wreck and there's pain and suffering, you bring a chaplain in, and I was kind of that person until we actually hired them. I said, But it's really difficult to be with people when they're suffering. I said, But the beauty of it is, is you know, we're told in the church to lift the hand that hangs low and be that person there for someone. And I said that so what does it mean to be a follower? I think that each of us in the Adam's ward, or each of us, doesn't even have to be a member of the church, when you do an act of kindness to somebody who's feeling down, depressed, upset, angry, and you can change him for the positive, you're taking that little piece of pain or anger or suffering that, I think that when each of us sin, which I'm a great sinner, that Christ feels pain. Keith, I love you. Do a little bit better, 1% better, you know, but I'm still screwing up. But I also know that to serve someone is the best way to get around. In other words, to be in service of your fellow man overcomes a lot of sin and it helps you be a better person. So being a follower of Christ to me is basically um, trying to do something for somebody to where the Lord doesn't have to do it or if somebody's suffering being there with them and if you shed a tear with them then maybe the Lord won't have to shed that particular tear he's giving it to you to shed and if we can live our life and that's I guess as a 60 going on 65 year old man that's my goal if I live another 30 years is to become more of a person that shares in the fire department When somebody's inside a building and their air pack is out of air, their bell alarm bell rings, it's an alarm. You can go in with a full air pack, and you have what we call a bypass hose. You can connect it to your full bottle of air, and you connect it to their bottle of air, and the pressures equalize out. So what I'm trying to say is that in the process of sharing, you're going to lose something. You know, you're going to be giving a lot. So if somebody's at 500 pounds of pressure, or 600 pounds of pressure, and you're at 4,000 pounds of pressure, when you connect to them, you're going to drop to 23, and they're going to raise to 2,300. So true. It is a true statement. There are times when I can't give because I just don't have it to give. But then I try to refocus going to church, being with the brethren. I love Elvis Quorum. I love Brother Call. He gives great lessons. I love the Brothers in our Ward. I'm so comfortable around them. I love the talks. I love the people. It's just great. I get re-energized. I love to sing in choir. If you're listening to this and you're not in choir and you want to sing, my (laughs) wife would encourage you to come and sing. Uh, Just to let you know, a sister once told me that in the church they did a study, and they found that nobody had ever had an actual heart attack while singing in choir. (laughs) So uh, if you want to guarantee that you're not going to have a heart attack, sing in choir. At least while you're singing in choir, you won't have a heart attack and uh yeah so i think so i think that's pretty much it how's my time did i go way over
1: it's beautiful well thank you for being with us today we really appreciate your time and and uh loved your story
0: yeah